first, a word from our sponsor, Film Movement Plus, a streaming service for fans of independent and foreign film, delivers a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best movies from prestigious festivals around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are acclaimed films you won't find anywhere else, plus newly restored classics and award-winning shorts with new films added every week. Available on all your favorite devices, including Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But Watch With Jen listeners can get a 14-day free trial, plus 30% off their annual subscription using the promo code GEN30. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. In one of the earliest episodes of this show, I asked my friend, film critic and RogerEbert.com editor Nell Minow for any words of advice she had to offer young or aspiring critics who happened to be listening to the podcast. After thinking for a moment, she wisely and quite memorably told the audience that even more than just seeing and knowing a lot about movies, the most important thing one needed to go into criticism was to have a voice and know how to use it. As Nell explained, you have to be a good writer. And to back up her argument, she told us all a story about an out-of-work PhD who loved movies and began writing beautiful reviews online for fun and was so articulate that within six months or so, she was hired to become the film critic at one of the most prestigious online magazines around. This woman's name, Nell, told us just so happened to be Dana Stevens, and it's a real honor to welcome her to the podcast today. Slate's chief film critic since 2006 and a co-host of the magazine's long-running weekly culture podcast, The Slate Culture Gab Fest, Dana's writing has also appeared in such esteemed publications as The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and Book Forum. Additionally, she is the author of the passionately written and phenomenally well-researched new book, Cameraman Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. Not just an outstanding title, her book really is about all of those things cited within it, which is what makes it so endlessly fascinating from start to finish. Dana, congratulations on the book and all of your very well-deserved success. It is wonderful to meet you, and I want to thank you so much for being here. How are you doing, and how's 2022 going so far for you and for Cameraman? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. That quote of from course. Nell is so touching, and I never knew about that. And she and I are online friends only. I've never met her in person, but I've read oh. her forever, and you know, and know her well from chatting. So yes. it's very, it's very sweet that she's dispensing me as a model for aspiring critics. Um, yes. one thing that you said about my, you know, how how my blog, the High Sign, back in in the early two thousands, turned into film criticism is a little bit accelerated. It's a little okay. bit like a Buster Keaton fast motion because I think it was probably more like almost a year and a half that I was writing it before it led to anything okay. professional. And the first professional thing was not being Slate's film critic New York because Times, there was someone right? in the spot at the time. No, it was it was writing on TV for Slate intermittently. And that turned into being oh, nice. a sort of TV columnist 
and, you know, kind of a web surfing columnist for a while, like a pop culture columnist. I had this column called Surfer Girl, and that turned into being Slate's movie critic after their movie critic at the time, David Edelstein, left for New York Magazine. So if you really want to stretch out that timeline, it was more like wrote a blog for a year and a half, started intermittently writing for Slate on TV, and eventually a couple of years later moved into being their film critic. So yeah, it was very unexpected and fast, yes, but not quite that but fast. But still so impressive. And yes, she thinks the world of you. I've had Mel on a number of times. I've never met her in person, but through Zoom, I feel like I know her. And yeah, she thinks so highly of you. And for good reason, you are a wonderful writer. I've enjoyed reading your work for years. So Oh, well, thank you very much. And yes. I'm really excited to be here talking to you about Buster. Oh, of course. Well, I know you've been hard at work on the press tour for Cameraman, making several stops, introducing film screenings of Buster Keaton movies at cool movie palaces in the Northeast. Not your big impersonal airport style multiplex theaters, but proper movie palaces. And you've also guested on NPR, Marin and more. What have some of the highlights been for you so far on the tour? And is there anything you have coming up in the future that you would like to let listeners know about? Uh, wow. Well, okay. Well, for one thing, yes. One of the highlights of the tour, I mean, the whole thing just has been, honestly, I yeah. had no expectation that the reception for the book would be this warm and that there would oh. be this many great stories that came out of it. But I should have known that because of course, you know, Keaton is this huge figure who's embedded in our culture in ways that we don't even realize. And that's part of what the book is about. And so I'm just seeing that in action with the rollout of the book and, you know, people coming forward that have, you know, different kinds of connection to Keaton or someone he knew in his life, uh, a seven-year-old boy at a screening I was hosting the other night, an evening oh, screening lovely. that was not aimed at kids. And he asked his parents if he could stay up past his bedtime so he could come see the general with them uh, because he's a big Keaton fan. And so I signed a book for him. So that was really wonderful and gave me the sense that, you know, I actually am a part of passing on a legacy of film history. Uh, incredible. Other great moments. I mean, just, I think just generally, especially in the chaotic moment of COVID and, you know, world crisis that we're in, that so many people care about a book, a book at all, that people care about a book, that people care about a book about hundred year old silent movies, you know, that are not necessarily woven into our daily pop culture, yeah. even if they're there in the background of it. Just the fact that this is a meaningful object to people, I thought it was going to be a struggle to get anyone to pay attention to it, as it is in general to get anyone to pay attention to anything these days. Yeah. And so the fact that the book seems to have its own momentum, I mean, I chalk a lot of that up to just Buster and the subject matter being incredible and people people having a relationship with it. But the fact that my book is bringing something new to that relationship has been amazing, like every day since the book has been published. So it's hard to really pick out a highlight of, of the tour, but each event has been great. Um, one that's coming up that people should know about, well, a few that are coming up, they might want to know about. Uh, if you're in the New York area, I'm going to have a screening for kids of, um, of oh. Keaton Shorts. Since children, you know, like the, the seven-year-old I just described or my own child when she was six, they always respond to Keaton, right? We'll talk yeah. about this was a child entertainer and he yes. understood how to entertain children. And so we arranged for Museum of the Moving Image to host an, an all kids um, program of four shorts. And that's on February 26th. Uh, what else is coming up? The, the Jacob Burns Film Center. I don't know if you know that place. It's up in Westchester. Yes, Janet Maslin. <laughs> she offered to give me a tour when I'm in New York, so I can't wait. Oh, yeah. oh, that's great. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, they they reached out and wanted to do a screening and we're going to have live piano accompaniment. So I try to make each of these screenings have something a little bit different to set it apart. And this one, we have a live pianist named oh. Ben Modell, who is a fantastic, I've seen him accompany films before. And he also, your, your listeners should know, hosts this thing called Silent Comedy Watch Party every Sunday that's sort of a Zoom Ooh. event about 
about silent comedy. Anyway, he knows a ton about the field and he's really fun and he's accompanying that. Those are the last two in-person things, but it seems like a little bit further out in the spring, I might get to go to Austin. I might get to go to the Bay Area. Uh, other things are in the works, but I don't want to, I don't want to jinx them by talking about oh, yeah. them yet. No, I completely understand. It makes me so excited to hear kids are reacting so strongly to Keaton and your book and loving seeing these films on the big screen. That just is very moving to me as a kid. I loved movies like from the time I was very small. And for me, it was Charlie Chaplin was kind of a gateway into film writing, I was in sixth grade. It was around the time the Chaplin movie came out and we were assigned uh, like a bio project to write a biography. And I had a crush on Robert Downey Jr. at the time. So I didn't know anything about Chaplin, chose Chaplin and then just completely fell in love with the movies, read his autobiography, a bunch of books. And I wrote way too long of a paper. Oh, I love it. That's such a good nerd origin story. Yes. Yeah. And my teacher actually like submitted it into a district writing contest without telling me and I won. And so I got to go to this writer's conference uh, for young writers. I was just in sixth grade and it was really cool because I thought, wait a minute, you can actually write about film like for a career because it's my favorite thing. And so, yeah, Chaplin was kind of my gateway. And I love that your daughter responded to Buster Keaton when she was young. And this kid uh, that you met on the tour responded as uh, a child as well. It just is so moving to me. Very valuable. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you told that story. I love it. Yeah. I mean, even though that Chaplin film, I think you would agree in retrospect is a terrible film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, recently the, the, the Robert oh, Downey the Jr. Bio- I mean, yes, <laughs> he's fantastic in it. Like he is sublimely yeah. good as Chaplin, but the vehicle is horrible and it's so no. misogynistic. Like I couldn't even finish it when I tried to watch it for this project, for this book. Yes. Yeah. I had to focus like exclusively on the Chaplin films. I do remember watching that and I loved Marissa Tomei. So we're part of right. American. So I was super excited. And I'm like, what did they do? So I remember writing way more about modern times and gold rush and all the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Just the way that movie suggests that, that Mildred Harris, you know, the underage actress that Chaplin got pregnant and married. Yes somehow seduced him as this vamp. I mean, that movie just she hates was women, heavy. hates yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not a good picture. I have not. But it still is such a great forever. story. Yeah. But it's still such a great story that it was your induction into Chaplin and into yes. that world, you know, and it yeah. and it proves once again that, you know, it doesn't have there's all kinds of different avenues like rivulets, you know, that can mm-hmm. bring this culture to us. Yes, 100 percent. But one of my favorite things about your book is that not only is it a Buster Keaton biography, although it is definitely a very good one at that, but it's also a study of America from the time of his birth up through the rest of his life with major emphasis placed on his early years and vaudeville with the implications, risks, and the way that that set the stage for his future, along with the development of filmmaking in the teens and 20s in particular. When you and I spoke on the phone, we bonded over our belief that the best thing about writing about movies is that you get to write about everything. And that's exactly what you did here in Cameraman. I told Dana that my friend, the Boston-based film critic, Sean Burns, and I both happened to be reading advanced copies at the same time and kept geeking out in the Twitter DMs about the latest things we were learning in her book and, you know, about, say, either a early chain restaurant or the way that you could order a home kit from Sears and they would send it to you by train to build on a lot, which is something straight out of Buster Keaton's classic short one week. 
Your book is filled with these great details, but more than that, for example, in chapters devoted to the advent of child protection laws or the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, you really put everything you were writing about Buster Keaton, his family, and contemporaries into perspective. I have so many questions beginning first, perhaps with if this was always your planned approach right from the beginning, and or if you widened your scope more during the research process. And Dana, how long did this take to research and write? Because my goodness, it is an undertaking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, hmm. Okay, well, to do the, the last question first, I mean, I say this book took six years, but that's a little bit of an exaggeration because, of course, physically producing a book takes a certain amount of that time. You know, yeah. I guess that I probably wrote this book in about yeah, five and a half years or so, but it will wow. have been six years by the time it comes out. And of course, that six months is also full of, of things that are are writing. They're just, you know, editing and sort of yeah. polishing and creating the book jacket copy and all kinds <laughs> of other stuff um, that is still working on the book in a way. So yeah, six years, I think, is a fair number to say. Um as to whether I always had this approach, I mean, I always had an approach that it would not be a traditional biography, for sure. I never okay, sort perfect. of set out to write a straight biography and then said, oh, I think I'll zigzag. I mean, the zigzagging idea was already there in the initial kind of pitch write-up that I made for, for the editor who eventually acquired the book. But exactly what the zigzags would be were, um, were not that clear, especially after his childhood. I always knew, for example, that I yeah. wanted to get into child abuse law and child labor law and kind of where what it meant to be a child at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century in the beginning of the book. But some of the frameworks that came up later, like the AA, came up in the process of research. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, maybe there are people out there who can research an entire book and then start writing it. But if I had done that, I would have forgotten the first thing I read by the time That's I got to I the wondered. end. Yeah. So yeah. I kind of did it as I went along. Basically, I was sort of always reading one section or one chapter in advance, right? Okay. So, um, so while I was writing one thing, I would be thinking about how to frame the next bit of his life. And really the guiding beacon through that was just my own curiosity. I mean, I would look at a certain stage of his life. I had already read sort of the basic biographies about him and knew the facts of his life pretty well as, as far as they are known. Uh, they're much disputed, of course, and surrounded by legend oh, yeah. and things like that. <laughs> but knowing those stories, then I would think, well, what does that make me curious about? What does that make me want to know more about? And Usually there would be some obvious frame, for example, with the, the movie One Week, right? It's just all about yeah. constructing a kid home. I knew that there were such things as, you know, the Sears Modern Homes catalog and, and things like that. But I, I never knew exactly what that meant for American culture. So that was a case of, you know, diving down some rabbit holes and then realizing, wait, this has everything to do with Keaton. And in fact, discovering it wasn't my original discovery, but discovering that there was that industrial short film, right, that very much resembles One Week and some of its images. So Keaton must have seen it. And and used yeah. it as part of the material oh, for making that part of the book. Yes. When you were kind of comparing those. Yeah. And that's all just stuff that comes up, you know, just basically at the at the end of a, a few library trips or or Google dives. And much of the time, you know, I got kind of numerological about it because as you saw, as you see, 1895 is a huge number in the book, a huge I date. Know. I thought the that date was of Keaton's birth, but also yeah. all these other things. And it started to be like this mystical discovery where as I went along, you know, every time I would hit on something that happened in 1895, it would seem to weave into his story somehow. So for example, you know, uh, Bill W., the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, yes. who I write about in that chapter, was born in 1895. And when I read that and started to imagine him as an exact contemporary of Keaton's, yeah. it seemed like, oh, well, a history of addiction treatment would be something that would fit into, you know, writing about that part of his life when he went to a rehabilitation sanitarium or whatever they mm -hmm. called them. I'm getting ahead of myself. But the point is, it was always sort of like, take a chunk of his life, 
think about something, you know, that it makes you want to know more about to understand the context better and then dive into that thing. And usually that would lead me to somewhere I hadn't known I wanted to go. Yes. And I love the 1895 of it all, especially in your beautiful dedication uh, to your paternal grandfather who, like Buster, was born in 1895. I thought that was a perfect way to open because the history is also theirs. And so what a valuable book. And I mean, your family must be obviously so proud of you, but the story you're telling is their story too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I dedicated the book to my paternal grandfather and my maternal grandmother, grandmother. because they both had stories that in some way related to the book, yeah. but also because it was sort of a way of thanking my parents through their parents, you know? And since yes. part of what the book really is about is, is looking at, um, like telescoping history in different ways, you know, yeah. sort of looking at how far away 1895 was, but also how modern it already was. And Keaton as this figure who's kind of always of the future, right? Who doesn't yeah. seem even now like he's he's a he's an artifact from the past. It seemed natural to dedicate it to my own ancestors. Yes. No, it was perfect. When I spoke to Jason Bailey about his 2021 book, Fun City Cinema, which covered 100 years of New York film, he talked about consulting Mark Harris ahead of time for advice and also about the way he worked with researching interviews and writing, kind of like you, reading a little bit ahead, but writing as he went. Don't worry, it won't make you go too into the weeds here, but I would love to know a little more about what the experience was like for you from tracking down so many obscure old movies like those industrial shorts to any surprises you made along the way, whether that's in the way you worked or whatever. Is there anything about the writing of the book itself that you would like to share? Mm. Oh, that's a really good question. Well, I mean, for starters, Fun City Cinema is such a good book. I love Jason's yes. book. I just oh, gave it to Jason's a friend, great. actually. I just yeah. gave it to a friend who's teaching a class on, on New York New York City in the movies. And I, I said, I've got the perfect book for you and gave him a copy. Mm -hmm. um, but I love that he that he had thoughts about uh, Mark Harris's process because that a true biographer like Mark Harris, you know, somebody who really writes like a definitive biography of someone and is is interviewing their contemporaries yeah. and things like that. That that seems completely beyond my ken. It would be amazing to try, but this book does not try to do that. And I don't know that that would have even suited my strengths as a writer, you know, as much as as oh, as writing from yeah. a critical point of view. But um, but Your I think my approach, process. Yeah. Right. I think that the other than the, the interview component that Mark was doing at the same time, which would add a whole different level, right? Because you've got the logistics and transcribing the interviews and deciding what to use from them. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, I think our process seems maybe a little the same, reading a little bit ahead of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, also in my case, and I've said this to everyone who's asked about the research, the pandemic had a huge, huge effect on the process of writing this book. And it I might bet. have been, it might have had more archival things and more interviews with people and things like that had the pandemic not come along foiled again. Uh, when the pandemic came in spring of 2020, I was supposed to be publishing in fall of 2020 or, or winter, oh, basically. Okay, it was so going to be it was going to be a, a holiday book for 2020. And I would like to say that it was pushed because of supply chains and, you know, COVID delays. But the fact is, it was pushed because I wasn't done. And I wasn't done because COVID hit. And suddenly, yeah. you know, the world was in panic and my kid was living at home and, you know, doing her homework and crying about algebra three feet from where I was trying to get writing done. Yeah. And, it's I just got slowed way, way down. So, and, and suddenly I couldn't go to archives. I couldn't take research trips. I wasn't able to get interviews, which seems a little bit odd during COVID times. But the thing is that a lot of the people I wanted to interview at that point 
were um, famous because I wanted to have this chapter. My idea was to have a, a last chapter, which I ended up scrapping this idea that would be interviewing contemporary creatives who were influenced by Keaton, you know, and talking to oh, directors yes. and stunt people and clowns and people from all different fields, you know, that were that were somehow influenced by him and he was a part of their work. I still think that would have been a great chapter, but the fact is I couldn't make it happen during COVID. It's just, it's hard to get through to to celebrities when they don't have a current project to promote and when they, like everyone else, they're just trying to stay alive. And Uh so my few attempts to get through people's publicists to talk to people like, you know, Edgar Wright, I wanted to talk to um, Bill Irwin. Uh, I don't know, Jackie Chan would have been a dream get, you know? yes. And uh, and some of those people I'm even in touch with now, like Edgar Wright is reading the book and he's really oh, liking it. I love um, that. But at that moment, he probably would have given me an interview, but I wasn't able to make that chapter come together. So that was sad to scrap it. But I think I, I came up with an ending that I also liked. But to me, there's a very obvious seam in the book between where COVID came and I couldn't do that kind of research anymore. And, you know, then I had to kind of like wing it for, I won't say where the seam is because then maybe no one else will notice it. I did not notice it at all. So I think, I think it's that thing where you're your harshest critic, basically. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's completely for me. So. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I I said in an interview recently that although I'm very happy this book is doing well and it makes me happy to look at the cover because it's a beautiful cover, I don't really enjoy opening the book and reading it. (laughs) And I think probably (laughs) most authors feel that way about their books, you know, I mean, especially when they're first coming into existence. Like I, I've revisited the text enough. All Mm -hmm. I can see is the seams and the imperfections, like I was talking about, and even the typos and things like that. And honestly, one of the reasons I want it to sell well is so that it'll get to a second printing so I can fix the errors. (laughs) Oh, gotcha. Yeah. I think we're never done editing. We're especially perfectionists or type A's. I'm extremely that way. Like every time I read something older than a few years or even recent stuff too. I want to change things or tweak it or like, why did I use that phrase? But no, Dana, you did a remarkable job with this book. I think it would have been fun to talk to the contemporaries, but we kind of do have something similar. Although I love the angle with the clowns and stunt people, that would have been cool. Uh, This week when I was preparing for this episode, I watched uh, Bogdanovich's, you know, the great buster, the celebratory uh, Mm -hmm. documentary. And it was really fun to hear some of the Um, perspectives of filmmakers and people like Richard Lewis, who were friends with Eleanor Keaton. So that was, that was pretty great. And so I can see that, but at least, you know, this book has its own thing. It's telling the history of America. And you can also just see the way that uh, his work inspired everyone as you read. And then as you watch the movies, because I became so curious, I started to make on YouTube, like a playlist of all these Buster Keaton movies that I can't wait to watch. I didn't have enough time to watch all of them. Of course, you know, before this, the ones that I could find that were available that weren't colorized or bad music added, though I right. knew it. Yes. But, you know, you really piqued my curiosity. I'd seen some Keaton or I think it was high school is when I first became a big Keaton person, but it's been so many years. So I can't wait to go back now. Well, something I wanted to tell listeners, and I wish I had put this in the introduction to the book now, is that I think a fun way to read this book would be to treat it as like a multimedia project and just watch everything you can as you go along. Um, And I came up with that that. idea in part because my brother read it that way. I didn't tell him to, but he happened to be, 
he was at home recovering from surgery. He had lots of time kind of to himself. And he just took two months to read the book and just would keep on stopping and watching not just the Keaton movies, but Mabel Norman movies and Roscoe Arbuckle movies and, you know, Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard, which has a bit part from the older Keaton and was just watching his way through as he read. And he had a great time with it. Oh, that makes my day. I grew up with a ton of back surgeries and some health issues. And so I fell in love with movies when I was very young, but I would read all these film books, anything I could get my hands on. And as I would read, especially like Scorsese on Scorsese, where he's dropping a new film reference every five minutes, like, well, we tried to get this from Cirque or this. Right. I, I found myself like, you know, making lists to send my parents to the video store or like or the library. Can you track these down? And so that makes me very happy about your brother. As far as uh, finding all of these films, I mean, many are in the public domain. Uh, again, bringing up Nell when I talked to her for uh, her book, uh, I think it was 101 Movie Moments. Right. She talked about going to the Library of Congress and being able to like request a movie. I think it took a week to get there. They've come out with the white gloves and, you know, queue it up for her to watch. And so did you have any experiences with that um, going to museums or any libraries or archives you could to track these down that were? Yeah, I mean, stories? that's. That's a bittersweet question, because once again, it's like, with if COVID. not for COVID, yes. I'd have even better stories. But I do have one really great one, um, which maybe it could never get better than this, <laughs> which is that uh, I got to see at the Academy Library. It's the, the Margaret Herrick Library in Los Angeles, you know, belonging oh, to the yeah. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Amazing research facility. It's also just in a beautiful mission church kind of building. I love that place. Um, but so to look at, at the old stuff there, you have to make an appointment. You can go into their beautiful reading room just anytime and, and sit and read and look at the books they have, you know, for on their shelves. But if you want to look at the archives and people's papers and things like that, you have to make an appointment with a librarian. And so I did that and I deliberately scheduled it. So it would be on my birthday because I was really excited to, oh, to, to get to be there on my birthday and made a trip to LA. Um, and, and so on my birthday, my 50th birthday, I got to be in the, the, archive room at the Margaret Herrick Library, and they showed me Myra Keaton's scrapbook, which was this thing that she kept, you know, just a homemade scrapbook that she kept like in a big ledger kind of notebook for many years while the Family Vaudeville Act was traveling together. It seems like it covers, you can't exactly tell because she doesn't date the entries, but it seems like it covers about six or seven years of his childhood, you know, from maybe when he was five until he was about 12 or so. And, oh uh, and just, it's got, you know, clippings from when they were in magazines, it's got the trade ad that they would run every week for their act, which, which is fascinating to, to read because it would almost every week would have a different little poem that was sometimes by Joe Keaton and sometimes contributed by other vaudevillians. You just, you get such a glimpse into what the their his childhood was like and just their world that surrounded them was like through looking at this scrapbook and you know it's also just a handmade item that a mother made for her son and that he kept his what whole life treasure. you know and you have to imagine that he showed it to people throughout his life and you know and it was an active part of his memory and so anyway i mean holding that document you just can't imagine you know just what the, what oh an aura it had and i can't even say you know i'm not a what's the word for it? I'm not sort of a, a material historian in the way that it went into the book that that happened. I don't even tell that story in the book. I, I talk a little about the scrapbook, mm -hmm. but the scrapbook has been fully digitized, by the way, and you can look at the contents of it online. But just seeing the document itself was so important, especially early in the process, you know, like that, it almost kickstarted just, you know, my sense of curiosity and 
passion. So that's a really great memory. But there are so many other things I wanted to touch and that I didn't get to. In fact, when I was at that library, I remember seeing a box, not getting into it, but just seeing the listing for one box that was his papers from the mid 30s, you know, when he was oh, yes. um, in that moment of decline and thinking, oh, when I get to that part of the book, I can't wait to get back to the hair. I can get, dig into that box. But of course, by then there was no, the libraries were all closed. Mm. Yeah, but what a treasure. I mean, to be able to hold that. I think one of my favorite stories, speaking of Keaton and his mother that you shared, was uh, when they moved. Um, uh, Basically, Joe was drinking too much. There was some abuse and he left with his mother. And I thought that that was a really just character defining moment. I mean, of course, Joe was in his life and, you know, the family reunited and everything. But man, I thought that was a really fascinating aspect as well that you told the story of his parents, because I am very curious about his parents. I mean, you know, there's the joke about my son, I'll break his neck any way you want and all the things you tell us about them. And also just teaching him how to take a fall and all the stuff from his childhood and knowing how to develop these skills. I mean, it is remarkable. Yeah. You mean you're talking about when he broke up the act, right? The scene where, where, yeah, where the young yeah. Buster breaks up the act when he's about 20 years old or so. Yes. Yeah, that is one of those that is one of those dates. You know, I sort of feel like a traditional biography and I really respect these and and I'm so thankful they exist, but I don't think I could do one. Like a traditional biography <laughs> would take you through all the years of his life. And I know that there are years of his life I don't talk about. There are whole movies I don't talk about, you know, even even to give them a mention. Um, but that is in part so that I can could take those little fractal moments yeah. like that moment in um, in 1916 when he breaks up the act and really focus on them as stories, you know, because that's just I mean, honestly, that is just a biopic that writes itself right that moment like they're so taking compelling. a train yeah. from Oakland to Los Angeles to their next vaudeville gig. And they just decide to leave Joe at the theater mm-hmm. door because he was drunk and he didn't show up on time. And and Myra, Buster's mother, says to him on a train, he, as he tells the story, she says it on a train. So I always pictured them between cars, you know, in that oh. little open space <laughs> so they could have a private conversation. And she says, Buster, I can't take it anymore. She basically tells him, you know, I want I want us to break up the act. And he said to his biographer, who, who this, he was telling the story to, well, it was because Myra asked me, you know, I probably would have just kept on taking it if not for her, yes. because he did have, as I talk about in the book, this very passive side to his personality, uh-huh. you know, especially in his personal life. He could yeah. be driven in business. Well, he was a horrible businessman. He could be driven <laughs> in art, in art and creativity, but he, he, he wasn't particularly motivated in his personal life. And mm-hmm. in both cases, when his first two wives served him divorce papers, he just did nothing. He responded in no way. You know, that's kind of yeah. the, the character trait that he that really brought him down in many ways. Um, but but the, yeah, that moment when he was able to make that decision for his mother and break up the act is huge. It's huge in their lives, obviously. Yeah. And it's sort of it's sort of huge in entertainment history because it ends up being the moment he switches from being a stage star, which he really had been since the age of five, yeah. uh, to being a film star with almost no downtime, you know, and almost no learning curve. That's what, something that's quite incredible about the moment he steps in front of the camera is that almost immediately he was also behind the camera, you know, serving mm-hmm. as the apprentice for Roscoe Arbuckle, who he started in the movies with, and very, very soon becoming his co-director. So there's this kind of sense of effortlessness to the first third of his life, you know, yeah. the, the, this period when he just keeps on rising and rising and keeps on exploring new things that he can do. It's just, it's a really incredible trajectory of an artist. I can't think of too many artists that, you know, with so little training really, Mm -hmm. except for, you know, being born into the family he was born into and without even trying to be an artist or thinking of himself as one, you know, just 
accomplished so much in such a short period of time. Yeah. And you kind of set that up with the sections of the book. Um, if I'm missing one off the top of my head, correct me, but it was like thrown, flying, falling. Is there one more? And landing. Landing, <laughs> landing is the yeah. last one. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, I, that was, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh no. I was going to say it's perfect too, because uh, when I was going over the book and how much we were loving it with Sean, one of the things he brought up is he said, you know, traditional biographies are great, but one thing I really was responding to with your book was uh, he said the fact that we jump right into it with Buster. Like she doesn't waste a lot of time with, you know, his great grandfather was on the farm or, you know, you right, don't right. Yeah, tell us those kind of stories, like the entire um, SMA joke in Wonder Boys, the genealogy of everyone's horses or something like that. <laughs> You know, you just kind of go right into it. And so we're thrown just like Buster was thrown, essentially. And I think that really is effective. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, thank God for, for biographies that tell, give the genealogy oh, yeah. of the horses. And honestly, <laughs> some of my favorite books do that. I have the, I, I show business biographies are something that I have a real weakness for, even if they're, you know, if they are, they can be long and dry or they could also be the kind that are really dishy, but, but probably halfway yeah. made up. Right. Show business autobiographies. You have to be incredibly distrustful of, obviously. But is there anything yes. funner to read than a show business autobiography? Not at all. No. And so that's part of why this research took so long. Honestly, I mean, I read so many books that never directly went into this book. I mean, maybe they somehow, you know, nourished my brain while I was th thinking. But I mean, I read, you know, two separate biographies of Burt Williams, a biography of Escott Fitzgerald that was probably 700 pages long. My favorite writer. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. So and he makes he his way in, in there. Yeah. yeah. He's got a whole chapter. Yeah. Oh, it was mesmerizing. Well, in talking to Dana about our ideas for the episode today, our net widened from an episode devoted solely to Buster Keaton to that of Keaton and friends. Instead, as I started recalling a few of my favorite chapters, I told her how much the ones chronicling the real story of Roscoe, quote unquote, fatty Arbuckle, and the one about the female filmmakers and vibrant personalities of the period, especially Mabel Normand, meant to me. And on the spot, Dana programmed a terrific trio of two shorts and one just slightly longer feature for us to discuss. These include the wonderful 1916 and 1918 Roscoe Arbuckle directed shorts, Fatty and Mabel Adrift with Norman and Arbuckle, and Goodnight Nurse with Arbuckle and Keaton, along with the 1924 classic Keaton-directed comedy Sherlock Jr., as longtime listeners by now are well aware, I've been known to go a little overboard in my uh, introductions to films in the past on the podcast because I'm a nerd. But this time, and especially because I'm new to the first two shorts, and I'm mainly here to learn from you, as we all are, I promise to be brief, which is helped by the fact that these movies are just so short. I mean, as Dana put it, if you watch these three films back to back to back, the running time clocks in at roughly 100 minutes altogether. Going chronologically through the list, we start with the irresistible charmer Fatty and Mabel Adrift, which I have to say is one of my new favorites, produced by Max Sennett at Keystone Studios in 1916 and starring the oft-paired duo of Roscoe, Fatty Arbuckle, and Mabel Normand. This film finds the two playing newlyweds who trade their life on her parents' farm for a seaside cottage, which is ultimately set adrift in the sea in the middle of a storm thanks to a jealous romantic rival and his hired goons. Waking up to find their new home rapidly filling up with water, it is up to their trusty dog to save the day. 
when he becomes the bearer of a note informing Mabel's parents that without a rescue, the two are going to drown along with the dog, but they sent the dog away, which I loved. Filled with real affection, you can see that the duo had for one another as actors and friends, including lovely scenes where Mabel's lips call out, not for Fatty, but Roscoe, and also seriously ambitious in terms of its setting and scope. I adored this short and jumped online to find photos of how they executed the water sequence during production. I know there's more to discuss here. So Dana, what can you tell us about Fatty and Mabel Adrift, as well as the history and the status of these stars in 1916? Ah, okay. Well, first of all, you're going to have to tell me later about how they did the house floating, except that there's a model in in the part where you see it floating. I have no idea how they did it. But part of why that movie is so exciting is is because it has sort of a a pretty big action sequence at the end, especially for a Keystone movie from 1916. So just to place who Roscoe and Mabel were at that moment in film history in 1916, uh, Roscoe Arbuckle is still with Senate at the Keystone studio, um, which Mabel has been with since the beginning. And as I talk about in the book, she's one, one of the, one of the co-founders and the only female co-founder of the studio. So she's a really powerful figure there in addition to being, you know, the the main female star. Uh, She directed many movies there as well. But the director of Fatty and Mabel Adrift is actually Roscoe Arbuckle. And his status at the studio, I can't remember the exact year he got there, but he would have been there since the early teens, very early teens. Um, And he distinguished himself essentially by his, you know, his his comic gifts. He started out as just a Keystone cop, you know, or a, a background guy just one of the many people kind of falling in piles in a melee as there always are in Keystone movies. And as Chaplin did shortly after him, he just distinguished himself by being the funniest cop in the lineup. Right. And also very physically distinguishable with his big size. And, and and so it almost immediately became a favorite at Keystone. And because of his directorial ability and his, his drive and just his, his interest in, in making motion motion pictures, he very quickly also became a big director at Keystone. So yeah. by 1916, he and Mabel had made lots of movies together. I'm going to say probably a couple dozen as oh, wow. a duo. They were, they were a comedy team. They were Fatty and Mabel, right? Fatty mm-hmm. being his performance name, which unfortunately he's been historically remembered as. But as, as you know. say, yeah. when you see somebody's lips move, on screen they're calling his name right yeah um so he and mabel were friends off screen and creative partners you know i think he really valued her creative input on the on the movies they made together and at this point 1916 he was established enough as a director at keystone that he sort of had his own unit i don't think it was called the arbuckle unit or anything but he for a few movies there he got quite a bit of money for for a max Senate movie to put together something like this it's a bigger production the other one that i think of it as paired with it that i talk about in the book a bit is it's called he didn't he didn't which is in okay. a way even more sophisticated than Fatty and Mabel Adrift because it's this extended dream sequence and it turns out you know that this murder that happens never really happened and for a 1916 short comedy, it really has a lot of sophisticated and fairly dark things in it. Um, so that's yeah, interesting to see, too, if people like- want to go down a little, you know, Roscoe and Mabel rabbit hole. Um, uh, he didn't. He didn't. But Fatty and Mabel Adrift, I wanted to choose because it lets us do this kind of genealogy of Arbuckle. You get to see yeah. him growing as a director in this movie and also doing some very Keaton-esque things. For one mm-hmm. thing, floating a house in a river, which Keaton does later in a Steamboat yes. Bill Jr. But also the the narrative coherence of this movie, which is something that was unusual at Keystone. A Keystone shorts tended to be they tended to have this structure right and this specifically they tended to have a structure that 
the first reel and the second reel were almost completely separate from each other. And <laughs> probably because they were shot on different days, you know, and they yeah. hadn't been planned that far in advance. But it was sort of a tradition in Keystone movies that there would be, you know, a setup about domestic comedy or something in the first half. And then suddenly things would wander off like, let's go to the beach and everybody falls off the pier or something in the second half with only a slight connection between, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the plot between the two. In fact, that happened in a lot of Keaton Arbuckle shorts that, that came along later. They had that kind of raggedy structure because it was still, you know, the early days. Um, but if you watch Fatty and Mabel Adrift, it's it's a through composed, you know, complete story. Yes. It's as much about the characters as it is about the action. There aren't a lot of Keystone shorts that have a legitimate romance in them. It's usually sort mm-hmm. of more like, am I going to pinch this girl or chase her through the park? Or, you know, <laughs> Mabel Norman. Yeah. Right. And Mabel Norman being somebody's sweetheart, et cetera. But like, Having a real collaborative, you know, kind of um, companionate marriage, as you see in this in this short, was really unusual. So it's actually kind of a romantic comedy as well. I just see it as a real template for a lot of things that came later. Absolutely, yeah. She has a little more agency than you would expect um, in some of the shorts, where you know they're kind of uh, to use a phrase that my friend Jed likes to say, a scold essentially. You know, like you must stop drinking or don't bring everybody home or that kind of thing. And, you know, Mabel is a partner for Roscoe Arbuckle. And one of the scenes I love so much, and it kind of reminded me of modern times a little bit, is where she's cooking and she makes the biscuits and they're far too hard (laughs) and she's embarrassed. That is uh, such a great scene. And it's so so simple. It's really just prop comedy. You know, that really completely depends on those characters being well-developed as they are and those two performers being just irresistible and really good at at expressive pantomime, right? Because all that is really happening is like, there's a plate of biscuits, they're too hard to eat and like a dog is sitting there, that's it. And they make all (laughs) this little comedy out of that and also little bits of character work, you know, where you see her sobbing because the biscuits aren't okay and him pretending they're okay and eating them while secretly feeding them to the dog who doesn't want them. You know, it's, it's just great. Yeah, so moving. I I think it's really sweet. And it shows how genuinely the two characters feel for one another, which is very refreshing. Uh, You also have the romantic rival, which is kind of a staple in these movies. Um, I also enjoyed, though, I mean, not just the physical and the sight gags and the spectacle of it all, but some of the ways that the names worked. Like in the cards, when we see the real estate guy was I Landum, which I thought was good. And uh, Brutus Bombastic, which was, I don't remember what the business card said, but it had like ransom, murder, kidnapping. And it was very good references available. I love that it said that on the card, like references for your, you're good at murder. The name joke thing happens in some Keaton and Arbuckle movies too. I think Arbuckle plays a doctor named Dr. I. Odine in one of them. I mean, it's not a very Keaton <laughs> thing to have jokes in the titles. Keaton actually liked to have the, the plainest possible and the fewest possible titles. But but Arbuckle definitely had fun with his titles. Yes. No, it's very punny. Um, the dog is so great. And I think you mentioned in the book that was the Keystone dog that was in several of the shorts, was it? I mean, I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. If not, if not, there is a dog named Teddy at Keystone that looks exactly like Roscoe's oh, no, dog no. Luke. I, I thought so. Yeah, the dog yeah. is credited as Teddy, but I imagine that you know it was it was the, the, a, a name made up for some reason. I don't know why, because Luke is a perfectly good dog name. But yeah, that was yes. Luke, who was one of the first canine movie stars. There are people who know a lot about the history of animals on film who might find an earlier example. But I mean, before Lassie or Rin Tin Tin or anything, Luke was pretty big. He made probably about. 
15 movies or so. Well, he's credited and not credited in this one. So maybe that's not even on his list of movies. But yeah, he made maybe a couple dozen movies at Keystone. He made some wow. with Keaton and Arbuckle at Kamiki Studios when they started working together, too. And he, he, he was Roscoe's dog in real life with his wife, Minta Durfee. And in fact, I believe when they split up, which happened sometime around the late teens, um, she took the dog, but the dog continued to work in the movies. So they must have gotten along OK because they were doing dog custody sharing. Yes. Talk to me about Mabel Norman. I love the chapter when you mentioned in 1916, which was in this film was made, um, women were directing more than they were today. There was a statistic that was alarming. Um, she had a lot of power. She was an ex of Max Sennett. And I think she's just a great presence on screen, but it made me curious to see her movies as director. So for anyone who's in the same boat as me, who wants to find out more, which ones are available that you would recommend? I mean, I'm pretty sure that all the surviving ones are available. Mabel okay, Norman great. has been really well. There's an excellent website. I don't have it in my brain, but I'll give you the URL so you can post it oh, to your course. site um, that has compiled, I think, decent copies of all of her shorts that are available. I mean, so many silent movies are lost in general, not just mm -hmm. hers, that the majority of movies that she made are lost. But in her case, that is not a tragedy because she made so damn many that there are still yeah. a lot that survive. And they've been really pretty lovingly restored and put on sites and things like that. So there's places to watch them. But I mean, in general, almost almost all these movies can be found on archive.org and or YouTube. It might not be the greatest quality copy. Oh, yes, but... You know, it might be a weird cut or have subtitles in a different language or, you know, <laughs> I can't guarantee you got to go to hard physical copy media if you want to mm -hmm. really have the experience that you would have had in 1920 or 1919 or whatever, seeing the movie. But there's no shortage of ways to find almost all the movies that I write about in the book, uh, unless they're lost silence. Um, but something I want to say about her directing, which points a little bit to directing in general in that era, is that the job of director was not nearly as clearly defined, you know, at yes, say Keystone in 1916, that. right? Or, or any of these places at that time as it is now. So mm -hmm. um, sometimes there was a credited director on screen. Sometimes there wasn't, but even if there was a name that might not be the person who effectively directed yes. it. Um, and many of Keaton's films, you know, you'll sometimes see in, in writing about his films, oh, such and such, you know, um, directed by Clyde Bruckman, right? Clyde Bruckman yes. was a, a gag writer and a friend of Keaton's who gave him the idea for the general and, and certainly collaborated on whatever sort of screenplay there was, basically kind of a written treatment. But he wasn't really the director. He might have been the guy behind the camera while Buster was in front of it. But Keaton was 100% the director of that movie. So those kind of credits worked differently. And, um, and I think that you could safely assume that Mabel had input on most of what was made at Keystone. You know, I suspect she was wow. at least walking yeah. onto the set and saying, okay, how's this going? You know, she was kind mm -hmm. of like managing productions and things like that. And this is somewhat speculation based on, you know, what we know about how that studio ran. But if anybody was running things besides Max Sennett, I think she was. Yeah, she was a name that I was familiar with a little bit from film school and just research. But this was my first movie that I can recall anyway, seeing her in and I also like in the same chapter, you brought up other directors that I think get a lot of the um, spotlight in film history or my women in film class, which are Lois Weber and Alice B. Blanchet. And you bring up some others, uh, women who had a lot of power in the era, uh, Mary Pickford. But I thought this was a good way to shine a spotlight on Mabel as well. Yeah, she just to me emerged. I mean, I really I knew I wanted to do a chapter on women directors in mm -hmm. the industry at that moment, specifically at that moment in the late teens, 
because, well, A, the Keaton connection is that that's when he entered the movies, right? Yeah. So then the question arises, well, what was it? What did it mean to enter the movies in 1916, 17? Um, but but also because these this is just a missing hole in so many film histories, you know, yeah. and uh, and it wasn't at the time. These movies were really popular. It's not as if as if they were being made for some niche feminist collective in 1916. Oh, no. You know, <laughs> I mean, some of the most popular movies of that time were centered around women, you know, if or women who were not necessarily directing their movies, but were starred in them and were mm-hmm. effectively producing the entire thing. And, and there I think of the serial queen. So people like. Um, Pearl White or Kathleen Williams or Helen Holmes, who, who who were these action stars and would make these serials, you know, cliffhanger type uh, series where they would be jumping onto trains and riding motorcycles off of piers and doing all kinds of extremely dangerous stunts in kind of Keaton-esque fashion. And those serials were hugely popular. So there, yeah, there was this moment as the film industry was gearing up that women were starting to take the reins and have all this power. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, the, the title of this chapter we're talking about is Mabel at the Wheel, which was the title yeah. of the short that she made, right, with Chaplin. And yeah. they were starting to take the wheel. And essentially it all ended, you know, right around the, the late teens. Yes. Right. <laughs> and and the reason that it did, I mean, can be pretty easily guessed, right? It's just essentially that as the business was becoming big business and making a lot of money for people, it suddenly became the province of men who, of yes. course, were, you know, in charge of who was in power. And so I took Mabel as a kind of test case to trace how you can see that happening through her story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as sweet as the mood of our last short was, our next one, at least when it begins, is a little more sour. In the Arbuckle-directed short Goodnight Nurse from 1918, it opens with his character in the water, yet again, not happy with Mabel and the dog, however, this time, but rather drunk in the rain, getting into all kinds of trouble until his wife realizes that something must be done about his drinking, bringing him to a sanitarium to dry out. Arbuckle rebels by swallowing a thermometer and winding up on the operating table with Surgeon Buster Keaton at his side. Things get wilder from there as Arbuckle eventually decides to escape and tries to help a beautiful female patient do the same, even going as far as to posing as a nurse and flirting with Keaton's bashful but interested doctor until they give chase. A freewheeling short that was completely new to me, as I mentioned, but it really fit with my memories of old Keystone era videos of silent shorts that I remember seeing years ago. This one shows the two ratcheting up the danger a bit more, although not to the screamingly funny yet frightening levels that Keaton takes it to in our next film. But I really enjoyed Goodnight Nurse and especially liked your analysis of it in Cameraman and especially the scene with Arbuckle flirting with Keaton. I would enjoy hearing more about that friendship and colleagueship and how it evolved over the years. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, to just place that short in the in the context of their friendship and their working relationship. Yeah. Goodnight Nurse was one of their earlier collaborations. Um, their collaboration started in 1917, just a few months after that time that we described when mm-hmm. the young Buster Keaton breaks up the family act and decides to go out on his own as a solo. Um, there was a lot of pressure on him at that moment because he was supporting his entire family, right? I mean, if, if not for his performative skills, yeah. they wouldn't have had the, the life that they had. And at this point, his parents were too old to perform. His younger siblings were in boarding school and he was going to have to find a job fast, right? Yes. And so 
He wanted initial- to make sure they went to school. Yeah. Right. Right. And I mean, his whole life, whether then it later became his wives and children and his ex-wives, he was just always supporting a lot of people. And that's a part yeah. of why, I mean, in addition to having an extremely strong work ethic, that's part of why he worked so hard, you know, in the yes. second half of his life, when he was doing beach blanket bingo and anything he could yes. get his hands on, it was partly because he en- enjoyed working, but he also mm-hmm. felt like I need to keep socking money away, you know? Um, yeah. And he was not, as we could get into later, a good businessman or like Chaplin able to you know, keep his career going after the mm-hmm. silence. But so to, to place where he was in 1917, he was looking to go out on his own as a solo act on the stage. Uh, and in fact, had just booked a job to do that. And in a story that is oft retold and that I tell again in the book, you know, there was this rainy day in March when he met an old vaudeville pal on the streets of New York on Broadway. And and this guy said, have you ever seen a movie being made? And Keaton says no. And he says, oh, well, Arbuckle's about to shoot his very first independent film. He's now left the Keystone studio and gotten his own you know, mm-hmm. patronage, basically, yeah. uh, to, to start his own comedy studio in New York. And do you want to go watch it, the scene be filmed? And uh, and so, so so Keaton goes along and winds up acting in the scene in a movie called The Butcher Boy and kicks off his career in movies and, you know, goes and tears up his agent his the contract with his agent to go on the stage. So this movie comes in 1918, you know, just the year after after that transition happened. And by now, Buster's fully co-directing with Arbuckle. You know, they're collaborating to make movies the way that they want. And the movies from this period are really interesting if you're a student of Keaton or even if you're not, just because they're funny. But it's just <laughs> it's really interesting to watch his persona develop in these movies because he hasn't yet completely solidified that poker face persona he's going to have in his own movies. It's certainly something he uses. It's his style to not be expressive. And on the stage as a kid, he used to do the poker face. But there's this great freedom to the Arbuckle shorts where it feels like Keaton's experimenting and having fun and letting himself be more expressive. And, uh, you know, so he laughs, he cries. You know, you can find places where he smiles in the Arbuckle shorts and they just have a little bit of a different, goofier, looser feeling. And Goodnight Nurse is a great example of that because a lot of it seems improvised. Uh, most of all, the scene of flirtation yeah. you were talking about. Yeah. And Roscoe's in drag and he's hilarious as, a, as is, you know, the, his female persona, which they called Miss mm-hmm. Fatty, who had already had whole movies dedicated to her. Um, but I love his drag persona. I love that there is nothing misogynistic about the way he plays drag or the movie treats it. You know, it's just no, perfectly it's serious. his, his yeah. alter ego is a woman, you know, and she's she's lovely. But in other ways, it's reaching toward a future style. And um, and then it just contains that glorious moment moment where Buster and Roscoe are flirting in the hallway, right? With mm-hmm. Roscoe in, in full nurse drag. Um, it's it's That's one of those scenes that's so perfectly played. It's, it reminds me of like a classic Saturday Night Live skit or something. You can feel the improvisation happening in real time. Uh, you can see Keaton start to break up at a certain moment. It's something that Roscoe moment. does. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And he yes. hides his face against the wall so, so you won't see him laughing. And uh, just the whole thing to me plays also as this very modern kind of deconstruction of of heterosexuality or something. I mean, just the idea that one of it's two men, one of whom thinks the other is a woman and is flirting mm-hmm. with him, a stock comic situation, right? Yeah. But but played completely straight so that they're both kind of adorable, you know, and mm-hmm. so that there isn't any sort of sense that one of them is the predator and one is the prey or someone's no. being tricked or like, won't it be horrible when he finds out? You know, it reminds me yeah. a little bit of of the end of some like it hot. Right. Where Joey Brown says nobody's perfect as he's speeding <laughs> off in the in the speedboat with Jack Lemon. Right. Having just learned that his his bride to be is a man. That's yeah. a little bit the tone of the flirtation scene, I think, in um, in Goodnight Nurse. Yeah, one of my favorite things in movies, especially comedies and Saturday Night Live, also on Johnny Carson or any of the shows, is when great entertainers, especially great comics, almost break or 
start to laugh and then they kind of elevate their game and you can just tell how much they're enjoying the moment and it makes you enjoy it just as much, if not more. Uh, there's that scene where, yes, it looks like Keaton does start to smile, puts his fingers in his mouth and it gets very, very funny. It reminded me of the scene, one of my favorites of all time in the Philadelphia story, uh, the CK Dexter Haven scene where Jimmy Stewart goes to see Cary Grant and he's drunk and you can see Carrie like just dying and trying not to laugh. And then <laughs> Jimmy starts and it's almost like you can tell they weren't even making eye contact. And it's it's magical. It <laughs> reminded me of this. Yeah, I agree with you. And I know that comedy aficionados are split on this. Like some people really don't like any fourth wall smiling, oh, you know, yeah. or, or think that it should be very, very rare. And I remember that when Bill Hader first started to be on Saturday Night Live, and he, of course, is famous for breaking up, right? Like he, it's rare that he doesn't break up in his Always. sketch. Yeah. And, and at first I used to hold that against him a little bit. I would think that guy's funny, but it's not professional how much he breaks up. But, you know, then once he, for example, creates the character of Stefan, who is based mm -hmm. on the moment that he breaks up, I started to love that, that hater shtick. Me too. And I love that you brought up Hater because um, one of my film professors, Daryl Kopp, actually taught Hater before he was a comic uh, film. And he said he was, you know, a wonderful student, would stay after class and just want to talk about movies. Hater is interviewed in The Great Buster, talking about Buster Keaton. You can tell his passion for film. And yeah, he is somebody that breaks up all the time. I'm also glad you brought it up because Daryl, my professor, is a huge fan of yours. And when I announced the lineup for season three, your name is the one he zeroed in on right away. So haters, professor, huge fan. Yes. Oh, my God. Fantastic. Oh, I, I hope he reads the book. And I hope Bill Hader does, too. I knew that he yeah. was a giant Keaton fan because I also saw him in that Bogdanovich documentary. Honestly, it drove me crazy that they didn't ask him and other interviewees better questions in that documentary. I agree. I mean, I felt like he was yeah. kind of wasted. He did, he he gave a couple nice sound bites, and it was obvious mm -hmm. that he did know and love Keaton, but they didn't ask him the right questions. I mean, I want yeah. to say to your listeners, and I say this with respect for Bogdanovich, the late and sometimes great Bogdanovich, but he also, as many of his obits have noted, you know, was sort of a an A plus C minus filmmaker who had some, a little bit, some, yeah, right. And I think that that Great Buster doc was very disappointing and was in parts also. I should say inaccurate. And I know I'm saying this is a Keaton super nerd, but there is a much better documentary about Keaton that is in fact an indispensable, I think, companion to anything that you read about him. It's a BBC one, or maybe okay. I never know my English channels, but it's an English documentary from the 80s. And it was co-created by Kevin Brownlow, who I talk about a lot in the book. He's a silent film scholar who interviewed Keaton when he was you know, a young man and Keaton was in his 60s. He's, I mean, Kevin Brownlow is basically sort of like the grandfather of silent film scholarship. He's incredible and he's still around. Um, and he, along with David Gill, made a co-directed a documentary about Keaton called A Hard Act to Follow in the Watched 80s. Watched it, loved it. It's wonderful, right? Yes. A three part, it's a three-part mm -hmm. series. So it's, you know, three, maybe hour or 45 minute yeah. episodes, but it's on YouTube. so addictive. You cannot stop watching it. And it may not be on YouTube forever because it was hard to find for a while Ooh, unless you bought a okay. copy. So people should go and watch it on YouTube while it's there and watch yes. it and then read the book or watch it along with the book because all these clips I'm talking about, Brownlow is just a very masterful, he does a masterful job at editing them together at giving the background, you know, at providing interview clips with Keaton when you want to hear them. So you really feel like you're going on this very smooth journey through his life and seeing everything you want to see. It's super well done. It really is. And I love that they did address the technical aspect quite a bit of some of the filmmaking and how he had the best cameraman and who he collaborated with, which kind of leads into our next movie, 
course. Um, this brings us to the next film, the only one from today that I'd seen before, actually. One of Keaton's undeniable masterpieces. We are talking about the 1924 film Sherlock Jr., centered on a movie theater projectionist and janitor played by Keaton, who literally and figuratively dreams of being a great detective. The film seemed to be the pinnacle of what Keaton brought to the movies, both behind and in front of the camera in the form of first, its innovative technique. And there's some moments here that you just know must have influenced movies like The Purple Rose of Cairo, The Living Daylights, and Pleasantville. And secondly, in his daring, how the hell did he do that and manage to stay alive style stunt work and a chase sequence that appears to have inspired Jackie Chan in several different movies, especially Super Cop, which immediately comes to mind, among others. I know that the behind the scenes of Sherlock Jr. was rocky in places with the sad end to the Arbuckle and Keaton relationship as Arbuckle was taken off the film as co-director and Keaton actually broke his neck doing his stunt work but didn't know about it until several years later. But obviously you know this material best, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on Sherlock Jr. Wow, you really did your homework, Jen. (laughs) You kind of ran down all the things that I was going to say. But to elaborate a little bit, yeah, 1924 is Sherlock Jr. So Keaton has his own studio now. He's had his own studio since 1920. And he has just moved from making shorts, 20-minute, you know, two-reelers like the ones we were talking about to making features. So he's not very far into his career as a feature comedy director. And in fact, mm-hmm. feature comedies are a pretty new thing at this point in the early 20s. Just the idea that there could be a whole movie-length comedy is, is relatively new. Um, yeah. And Sherlock Jr. was suggested to him, the idea was suggested to him by one of his longtime collaborators, Elgin Leslie, or maybe you say it Elgin. I've never been able to figure this out because there's no one alive anymore who True. pronounced his name. Yeah. Um, but he was Keaton's cinematographer in his, the sort of golden period of his career. Most of his best movies were photographed by him. And um, and he's a re- technically amazing cinematographer who loved to challenge himself, as did Keaton. So they loved to think of, you know, things like The Playhouse, the uh, the short Keaton did where he plays all the roles in the first reel as, oh, you know, yeah, the entire vaudeville cast of, yeah. a, of a show. Right. Everybody in the audience, everybody in the orchestra pit. It's all Keaton. And it was done, of course, with masking the lens at that time and just, you know, basically doubling the image and tripling and quadrupling, et cetera. And it's a technical amazement. I mean, how smooth it looks to this day. You couldn't you couldn't do a better job at making there appear to be multiple Buster Keatons. Don't you agree? Yeah, it is stunning. I mean, there's so many. I, I don't know how they did it. Also in this movie, I mean, there isn't nine of them. They're not, you know, um, all playing music at the same time, but uh, like the cutout, I think it was on the stage and then they slide in and there's um, scenery changes behind you. There's a projection going on of the film, but he's like entering the movie. I mean, to come up with all of this incredible stuff. Yeah, and- well, well, this is where I was going to talk about Elgin Leslie, because he this was a case a little bit like the general where Clyde Bruckman, one of Keaton's collaborators, brought him a book and said, oh, there's okay. this memoir about the Civil War. I think it would make a good movie. And that turned into the general. Well, in a similar way, Elgin Leslie, the cinematographer, said to Keaton, oh, let's do something where you climb into a movie screen. You know, he had that yeah. image in his mind. And let's just write a movie around that. That's part of why Sherlock Jr. is so short. It's only an hour long. It's this strangely, you know, even among his features and movies were shorter at the time. It's it's very short and it really is just a little fantasy almost about that happening. A projectionist yes. falls asleep, climbs into a movie. And then there's a little bit of frame story about this real life mystery that's kind of echoed in the mystery on screen, right? And that gets to him being a detective and so forth. But yeah. 
but really it was it was that image i think that made the movie ha- want to come to be and it was because of the technical challenge the image posed that they wanted to do it so keaton in later years loved to talk about how they accomplished that scene the scene where his character climbs into a movie screen and then as you say finds himself trapped in all these different mm-hmm. places and it's this kind of great joke about editing right where he yeah. just when he thinks he's somewhere the place that he is completely changes and you know he falls on a cactus or whatever it's just an excuse for all these silly jokes but in the framework of being edited but as for the moment when he climbs up into the screen the way it was accomplished, which Keaton loved to boast about and say, ah, even cinematographers couldn't figure it out at the time, was that they just lit a a stage set to look like a screen. You know, Mm -hmm. they had such sophisticated ideas about lighting that the illusion still completely works. It looks very flat, right? But in fact, that was a proscenium stage where they were acting out that story that was supposed to be the movie within a movie. So when he climbed into it, that wasn't a special effect. That was him just climbing up a step into that set, right? Um, Of course, then, though, when he is in all these different scenarios, like the ocean, the snow, the lion's den, et cetera, and and the editing keeps dumping him into new places, Mm -hmm. that that did have to be something technical, which I I suppose would also have been a version of lens masking of some kind. But, you know, they had to be very exact about his Mm -hmm. placement. And... uh, one rumor, which he later denied, was that they had they used surveyor's instruments to make sure that he was standing in the exact same spot, you know, so that the edit would be perfectly smooth when suddenly, you know, he tries to dive into water and then he's diving into a snowbank, things like that. Um, but that's just such a yeah. wonderful, you know, it's one of those moments when in a Keaton film where without him setting out to be an artist or to to investigate a grand idea, he is doing so, you know, yes. and it's such a wonderful moment of reflection on what cinema is and what being a spectator is and how those things were changing and had changed in his lifetime. You know, the idea that you would want to climb into the screen and affect mm-hmm. what's going on. And even the end, I absolutely love the end of Sherlock Jr., the joke of the end, which is that he's himself again, the projectionist waking up in the booth. The real life mystery sorts itself out. So he gets his girl back. And then there's this moment that he kisses her at the end, but how he gets the idea of kissing her is he looks out at the screen, you know, it's and, so and perfect. the guy yes. on screen is kissing the girl. And to me, it was that was just such a I don't think I even write about it in the book, but it's such a mind blowing kind of metaphor for the way that people were starting to look at movies, you know, and live their lives the way movie stars did and read about movie stars. You know, the idea that you would not know how to kiss your girlfriend until you saw someone on the movie screen do it is a wonderful joke about movies. Yeah, it's meta. It's almost postmodern for the time. It questions, you know, issues of voyeurism and kind of puts it in this framework of just a fun movie. I had read that uh, with his gag men, they were coming up with all these great jokes and they just needed to figure out like a way to put it in a movie or tell the story. They weren't sure what to do. So it's a little episodic. Um, But it also is, as you were saying, a love letter to filmmaking and cinema, which was, you know, what he loved too. It reminded me this time of that uh, Truffaut quote, I've always preferred the reflection of life to life itself. Um, because of the ending Mm -hmm. when you see him yes learning those things like how to kiss the girl Um, I think it's just really cool another scene that I love in the movie I mean the chase I think I've watched amazing chase chase. incredible chase times over the last week I keep queuing it up Uh, I love the chase but I also really dug the billiard scene I didn't know that Keaton had a love of um, billiards and was good at doing trick shots. Um, The joke, in case people haven't seen it in a while, is that there's a bomb in the 13 ball. We see it when someone throws it outside. There's also poison. There's all kinds of stuff going on. It's like clue for a minute. As he's 
queuing up to our shoot pool, he is scaring the people in the room that knows there is a bomb. They keep running out of the room. And then Buster's just having like the best time unaware. And oh my goodness, it reminded me too of the scene in modern times with the skates as uh chaplain is getting closer and closer to the edge. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Um, yeah. I remember a story about the billiard scene, just that he, you know, it was one of the things that he shot many, many, many times until he could get it right. You know, a lot of yeah. times he had a vision for things in, in three ages. There's a moment where he's playing caveman baseball, long story, and he's hit with <laughs> a club, club and a rock. And, and so the guy, the idea is that the, the pitcher will pitch him the rock and he will hit the pitcher in the head, right? He's basically going to bat it directly into his head. Um, and it took them a hugely long time. I don't know, 50 something takes or something to get it right. But Keaton kept saying, I'm sure I can do it. I'm sure I can do it. Let's keep going. And they did finally get the shot. I think the billiard game, which you, as you see, if you watch the movie is incredibly, even if you know nothing about billiards is like obviously prodigious playing, right? And yeah. aim. Um, I think that was similarly done after a lot of takes, but it, it just comes off so beautifully. And that's something that's really fun to watch in his movies that he never got tired of. Arbuckle had it too, to some extent, is that their fine motor skills were just next level. You know, they could, they could shoot perfectly straight. You know, they could throw incredibly well. They could juggle. They could make things land on hooks without looking, you know. And so all those kind of jokes that are really circus or vaudeville style tricks, they just work so well in the movies as uh, as character establishment as well. You know, they, they, they make their characters seem sort of special and magical because they can do these weird little tricks. Yeah, perfect hand-eye coordination. You see it again and again. Um, his high threshold for pain, acrobatics. Another moment I love in the film is when he jumps through the the man. It basically is another editing trick. Like I'm not sure how they did that. Oh, it's actually not editing. It's a it's, it's a stage not, trick. It's a vaudeville trick. That? I so love that you're asking that because one of the great pleasures of Keaton's life was that no one could figure out that joke. And he talked late in life about being on the Ed Sullivan show, which he was multiple times. And he did that trick once on the Ed Sullivan show. It's an old vaudeville trick. And uh, and Sullivan came to his dressing room afterwards and said, "How'd you do it? How'd you do it?" And he wouldn't tell him. <laughs> Um, kind of a magic trick. You don't want to know. You want right. to know and you don't want to know. Right. Yeah. Well, if, if, if you, if, spoiler alert, you're now going to find out how a hundred year old or more magic trick worked. Um, but, but basically as I, as I understand it, it had to do with the rig that they built for it, you know, almost oh, okay. like the way a disappearing lady table has to be a special kind of table or something. So if you picture the guy who was, you know, posing as the lady with the fruit basket or whatever it was, you know, the mm -hmm. woman through whom Keaton appears to like jump through jump the middle through. of her. Um, that guy was probably lying on a kind of board, you know, imagine like his head was sticking through and his neck was bent at a sharp oh, angle and I he gotcha. was just lying on a kind of board thing. Right. And so the, mm -hmm. the dress was just a dummy and it had a secret hole in the middle. Right. But, but you have to, but the reason the illusion looks so good, I believe is, is that whatever position that guy got into, it had to happen really fast on screen because there's no cut, there's no in-camera trickery, but somehow that guy who disappears behind the fence then is going to get lifted up horizontally on a board with his head sticking out a hole with a fake dress hanging in front of him. I have yes. no idea. I have no idea in terms of like the speed, how they did it, but that was the kind of rigging that allowed them to do it. I know it always blows you away. Also just how they achieve some of these, not only in Sherlock Jr., but the famous, I think, is it cops when the speeding car goes by and he somehow grabs it. And right. It, yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe he was interviewed about that somewhere, but I never heard him describe it. Oh, I love that. Another moment in the movie where he goes down from the top of the building on um, was it the sign goes in the car? I mean, wow. Yeah. yeah that, oh, that whole chase. I'd have to rewatch it to remember all the things that happened in it. But in terms yes. of 
it's just sequential greatness. I think it might be the greatest chase in Keaton. I mean, there's individual moments like the the rocks at the end of, you know, the boulders that fall down after him. Oh, in seven, chances that. seven chances. That is fantastic. And it's the high point of that movie. But he really extends it through all of these different logical progressions in, in mm-hmm. Sherlock Jr. As I remember, right? There's the bike where he's riding on the handlebars and he doesn't realize that the rider has fallen off. Is, is off right. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just the various, you know, cars and trains and things that he slides through and across is just so beautifully imagined. Yeah. I think it's cool too the motif throughout his movies of trains and how it kind of harks back to that story you were telling about he and his mother on the train, um, where he eventually got into film, kind of the when he broke up the act. Trains seemed to be a big part of his life. I know he uh, was a hobbyist and had trains um, around his home. And so I like the way that they were kind of woven throughout his movies and used in a variety of ways. So especially at the end of one week again. Yeah. Well, he grew up on trains, so they were a huge part of his life. Yeah. And literally his his home was basically on a train or in a theatrical boarding house from, you know, birth mm. until about age 20 or 21. So yeah. he really, really knew his way around trains. And yeah, obviously with the general and so forth, you know, so many of his movies, our hospitality also centers around this great old fashioned train. That's and right. uh, and as a hobbyist, too, he returned and returned to that image. And there's tons of toy trains in his movies. There's little moments in the shorts where, you know, cut to the future and Buster and the, the leading lady are married and they have a baby and they're playing with a toy train. You know, there's, oh. there's trains are everywhere in his life and in his work. Yeah, perfect. Well, those are the three that we had time for today, save for me monopolizing your entire uh, afternoon and weekend. But I just want to thank you so much for doing this. Before we go, however, I would love to know which other shorts from this era, whether they're with Arbuckle, Norman, Keaton, or anyone else that you would recommend those listening to check out. I'm glad you asked about shorts because I feel like that's a really unexplored area and it's a great starter kit for people who are just discovering silent film. So let's do one in honor of Chaplin, your first uh, love in silent film. And I think for that, I might pick uh, The Knockout just because it incorporates Arbuckle. And there's a a boxing scene between the two of them, Chaplin boxing Arbuckle, which is a a nice assortment of sizes and is just a a good comic visual. Um, And let's see, for, for Mabel Norman, since we were talking about her, you can watch one that she made with Chaplin very early Chaplin movie, right? Very shortly after he joined Keystone, that's called Mabel's Strange Predicament, in which you would also get to see Charlie play his drunk scene, which was one of his famous things on the music hall stage in England. That was kind of one of the characters he was known for, was this this tipsy guy. Um, So you see him do that, and you get to see Mabel Norman playing what was, at the time, a very racy scene of her caught in her pajamas in a hotel uh, hallway. Um, So Mabel's Strange Predicament is great. And then let's think of another Keaton short. I mean, just because there's a chance that there are people on Earth who haven't seen it, I'm going to say one week because I just think it's one of the great American comedies. And uh, there's a whole chapter in the book about it. Mm -hmm. So if you've already seen it, then you can find your own rabbit hole to go down. But you can never watch one week too many times and it's only 20 minutes. So that would be my Keaton recommendation. Yes. Your recommendations actually reminded me of Keaton. I think you compared it to the scene in Roman Holiday. Uh, with putting somebody to bed. Oh, BS, putting the drunk bride to bed, right? Which one was that? That's from Spite Marriage. That's from his last silent film from 1929. And uh, and it's really the best scene in the film. And it was one that he reenacted many times later on. It kind of became a a stock stage sketch that he would do. Perfect. Well, Dana, I want to thank you so much for doing this. I had such a ball learning from you and chatting about 
silent movies and all these wonderful people and everybody listening do go out and get cameraman wherever books are sold it's well worth reading absolutely thank you so much jen it was a total pleasure talking to you and thanks for doing so much homework so you had so much to talk about oh of course I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research, equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.